The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Next Generation episode, The Survivors. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. Hi, Dom. <laughs> Folks, remember, that's just, he doesn't say, uh, how's, how's it going? Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on Facebook at facebook.com slash Media. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN. And be sure to leave us comments wherever you find us. I want to mention another show on the network that you're definitely going to enjoy. It's called The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows, and that's where we discuss all kinds of movies, obviously, and TV shows that aren't part of our regular discussions like Star Trek and Stargate and Doctor Who. Uh, so we have a lot of fun in that, and you'll all hear from a lot more voices than just the three of us. So definitely check it out. It's at sqpn.com secrets or wherever you find fine podcasts. All right. This one we're talking about is The Survivors. It is a third season episode of TNG in, from uh, October of 1989. And it is one I didn't quite remember. Uh, this is kind of, I kind of came into this almost fresh. Uh, I probably haven't even seen it since the first time I watched it for, for whatever reason. I've seen TNG, the whole TNG several times, but uh, this one I didn't quite remember. But uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of this episode? Yeah, I definitely remember this. This is the Husnock episode. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this week, Next Gen does Stanislaw Lim's classic sci-fi novel, Solaris. <laughs> Picard and the gang go to a colony that issued a distress call four days ago, only to find that the entire surface of the planet is destroyed, bringing to mind the old gun right saying, when seconds count... The space cops are only four days away. <laughs> Once in orbit, they discover a single house that hasn't been destroyed, along with two survivors, husband and wife, Kevin and Rishon Uxbridge. The Uxbridges want to stay on the planet, and despite the fact that this is their legal right, Picard just won't leave them alone and keeps interfering with their civil rights. Meanwhile, Deanna Troy is suffering from a debilitating musical earworm that's destroying her mind and preventing her from sensing anything much about the Uxbridges. The alien ship that destroyed the surface of the planet shows up again, and after some cat-and-mouse encounters with the Enterprise, Picard decides to stop playing games. He beams down and tells the Uxbridges that the Enterprise will stay in orbit forever, literally forever, until the Uxbridges are dead. The alien ship then instantly shows up again and kills them, destroying their house from orbit. Yet, a few hours later, the house is back, so Picard beams them up to the Enterprise. It turns out that Rishon isn't real. She actually died in the original alien attack, and Kevin recreated her just like he recreated the house. Kevin is a Dowd, a deceptive, immortal, ultra-powerful being that can take many shapes and do basically anything except that for an innately deceptive creature who's never been caught in thousands of years, he's really bad at deception. 
<laughs> After healing Troy by doing a musical earwormectomy on her, he says that the aliens who attacked the colony were known as the Husnak, and they were super evil and super violent. He admits that despite being a pacifist himself, when they killed his wife, Kevin snapped and killed all of them. The whole race of Husnak, everywhere they were in the galaxy, all 50 billion of them. Picard wisely decides that he and the Federation are no match for Kevin, and they'd better get the heck out of the solar system while the getting is good, leaving Kevin to recreate his house and his wife and live out his fantasy on the devastated planet. The end. So we never see the Dowd again. He is the only example of the Dowd ever to yeah. show up in Star Trek. Although he is course, very much like Q, yep. the Organians, and several other... Trelane. Trelane, who may, may or may not be a Q. <laughs> and, and of course, we never see the Husnock at all. I mean, right. Because they're wiped out at this but point. They but got we even, a like, cool name. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yes, too bad. Yeah, so it's interesting the the Star Trek proclivity for creating these all-powerful beings to to menace our various crews of, of in various Star Trek series. It's it, that, that we keep revisiting this idea. Apollo is another one who's kind of uh, semi-all-powerful, semi. Yeah, like, but I, they he's got an organ they can interfere with. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I, I get a kick out of at the end where Picard's talking to Kevin and Basically says, well, we have no law to cover this. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, yeah. they also have no power to stop him <laughs> yeah. if they did want to try to arrest him. So, yeah, yeah. what are they, they going to do? He can wipe out an entire species with a snap of a finger. I don't think the Enterprise D and Picard stands a chance. Yeah. And what Picard says is we have no law to fit your crime. And I'm going, really? You don't have genocide, anti-genocide laws anymore? Exactly. <laughs> uh, we've got those. Yeah. But uh, I think the real, the gripping hand is that Picard has no ability to defend himself or the Federation. And let's not get husnocked, guys. <laughs> right. We're yeah, out exactly. of here. We're not qualified to be your judges, is what he says before that. And I think the reason. Yes, yes, they are. Well, yeah. <laughs> in one sense, a judge has to be able to carry out a sentence. And that's, I think, the part where you're not qualified. You are not mm. able to carry out any sentence on him. Uh, they, so. they also need to general order seven this planet, just yeah, like they right. did Talos four. This is Rana four. So yep. no ships should go there under any circumstances under the penalty of the death penalty, because you don't want to mess with that guy. You don't exactly. want to take him off so that he destroys the entire Federation. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's a nice guy until you make him mad and you wouldn't like him when he's mad. <laughs> he turns uh, pale blue. So, yeah. uh, Yes, it, it uh, the whole opening part. By, by the where, way, what what is it with planets with fours in their name? Talos four, Rana I, four. Well, they're it's just the Goldilocks where the, zone, right? Alpha four. I, I I think it's probably Goldilocks zone, right? You know, the the Earth is the third, Mars is the fourth. We kind of figure that's nah, where habitable planets are. I'm just I'm you're overthinking it. I'm just being silly. I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's where bad things happen is on planets where four. But yes, bad things on planets where four. <laughs> um, well, the, in Picard, Mars was where bad things happened. So it, it, yeah. it holds. Um, yeah, I, I like this, this whole concept of the planet being scoured, like literally destroyed completely, except for this one little spot. And at first I was thinking, well, that's if I were Picard, I'd be, does this look like the Borg? Because that's the Borg have done that a few times where they've literally ripped up the surface of the planet and taken it away. 
Um, mm. Although maybe not on a planetary was, scale. Well, this this was season three, so the Borg were known, but they weren't quite to the level that we see after. Yeah, That's they're, true. They're, they weren't even assimilating humans yet. Oh, right. We only had that one, I think only one encounter so far, in fact. If, um, yeah, where Q knocked him. And yeah. that may have actually been later in the third season than this. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, I can't. Also, this what so this is kind of an early example of a Twilight Zone episode because lots of the best next gen episodes are are a lot like the Twilight Zone where something weird is happening and we explore the weirdness. Like that episode uh, Remember Me where Dr. Dalen Quace comes on board and progressively there are fewer and fewer people on the Enterprise. Oh, that's right. And only Beverly Crusher realizes everyone's memories are being rewritten. You know, that's a classic Twilight Zone type episode. So is this. It's not as Twilight Zone-y, but you have this mysterious earworm that's destroying Deanna's mind. And I should clarify for people who may not know be familiar with that term an earworm is a song that you can't get rid of in your mind right. also formerly known in english as a maggot mm. so there are if you go to english country dances there are a bunch of maggots like after dinner maggot or <laughs> jack's <laughs> maggot or things like that and there it just maggot just means catchy tune that'll get stuck in your head right but then the parallel term in german got back translated into english in the 20th or 21st century as earworm and so you have Deanna being telepathically harmed by the earworm, and then you have this weird couple that's on the planet, and 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 those are kind of the two Twilight Zone parallel tracks running through this episode. And I find that the Twilight Zone episodes are often the best ones, mm-hmm. and while I don't mm-hmm. think this is the best episode ever, it is good for the period. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. The first two seasons were bad. And the third season is where it started to become decent, but it doesn't really get good, in my opinion, until the fourth season. And so we're in this kind of transitional season where they're figuring out how to do it better. And this is one of the signs of that is this episode. Hmm. Right. Well, what's what's interesting is this uh, was directed by Les Landau, who directed a lot of the TNG era. Oh, yeah. uh, Episodes. episodes. He's the one who basically made Code of Honor somewhat watchable maybe possibly because <laughs> he's the one who took it over that was like the first project he worked on right but he, he obviously his directing improved much after that so yeah yeah it's you mentioned the earworm and in fact there's a there's a conversation between picard and and troy where he says oh yeah i've had earworms too and she's like no 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 no. this isn't just like a song i get you that makes you snap your fingers it is i'm hearing it it's a it's out this loud. is a near cheap worm that's eating yeah. the brain. She I mean. says it repeats itself in perfect clarity from beginning to end and then starts over. So right. it's much more mechanical than what we experience with a typical earworm. Right, yep. right. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the acting, this is the, we're still in the Troy as um, the emotional crier of mm-hmm. the crew uh, phase. And I just find that hard to take, especially because. Troy becomes much better later. I mean, she's mm-hmm, she's mm-hmm. much less this, and uh, she's still transitioning away from the, you know, the the emotional one. Uh, I mean, she'd fit right in, and this, this Troy would fit right in on Discovery, but she does like yeah. in, in DNG, she kind of stands <laughs> like a sore thumb. Uh, so, 
There's an interesting bit in the acting, and I don't know if this was the actor's choice or the director's choice, but they're having a, a briefing in in the conference room, and Deanna is at the early stages of of the earworm problem, and she's in pain, but mm-hmm. she's not really outwardly showing it. We, the viewer, know she's in pain because of what they're doing with the camera, but it wouldn't be obvious to everybody in the room, except Riker. Riker is sitting right next to her, and he is turned toward her, watching her the entire time, with Picard behind him. And he's watching Troy. And and that's, uh, even though they don't say it, that's because he and she are former lovers, and they have an empathic bond. So he is picking up on the pain that she's in. And they never do anything verbally to acknowledge that, but that's a clear choice in the acting that's based on prior knowledge of the characters that I thought was a nice decision. Yeah, exactly. Nice, nice directorial uh, bit. I, I bet. I think that's probably La- uh, Landau who. Uh, well, it, it could that. be, or it could be Frakes and and Sirtis saying, "Hey, our characters had this past relationship, and they have this empathic bond. Yeah, maybe he should do this." That's one of yeah. those subtle things that makes gives the layers to a good episode, and so yeah, that that mm-hmm. is good. Absolutely. Crusher at one point calls it the devastation of the planet a nuclear holocaust, which is interesting because uh, you, you think that would be a bit uh, dated, uh, dated. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, because they, they would have other terms for it yeah. by this time. Um, Troy, at that point, is their usual unreliable self when sensing things from a distance. I sense something, but human, but yeah. something else, too. And and this starts even before they beam down and yeah. even before she gets infected, because we know when she gets infected there is after it's after they beam down to the planet, the Uxbridges are they're in the Uxbridges house and Data is looking at a little music box that has an animatronic dancing couple like from ballroom dancing inside of it. It's a little glass case. And the couple dances around and a musical tune plays and we cut up to the ship and Deanna Troy is starting to think about what's going on down on the planet and she's infected with the tune from the music box. Right. Which she makes a point to Picard. I've never heard this tune before. And she never learns the origin of it, Mm-mm. but it's the tune from the music box. And so we know exactly when she gets infected and she's already having her usual plot ambiguity in her senses before that happens. Right. right. <laughs> they never, they, they almost never could figure out how to use Troy effectively in TNG. Yeah. yeah. Not her psychic abilities anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if it's lower decks that has gotten me sensitive to this or just other stuff, but oh, I noticed the away team for this. Let's beam down to this devastated planet, to this weird anomaly. Let's send the first officer, second officer, security chief, chief engineer, and chief medical officer. Because, yeah. Like, or you could send like maybe one or two of those and some lower deckers. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's always been a, that's always been a trope in Star Trek. Yes. Let, let's be honest. You, you know, if Star Trek was real, the captain would not be leaving the ship ever. 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 Right. Yeah. Right. Ever. Except for like holiday or something like that. Well, they you know, did not. It would always be a lower yeah. decker. It'd always be a junior officer. Yeah. Well, you know, it would be more like Stargate. General Hammond does not go through the Stargate. He stays right. back at command exactly. and lets the lower guys go to under undertake the dangerous stuff. That's right. Right. That's exactly. Right. Um, One I, thing I liked when they do beam down, 
I, 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 they do an interesting camera move as, mm-hmm. as they're beaming down into this green, you know, lawn around the house. They pan forward with the camera and, and we, and they're doing it. And so we're changing the camera perspective. It's a crane shot. It's from above. And mm-hmm. we're changing the camera, the camera angle as they're in the act of beaming down. And I thought this would never have been possible in the 1960s. Oh, yeah. This is this is new. This is something they're pushing the envelope here, um, being able to do this now. And then Riker, after they beam down, if you look close, starts to ruin the illusion as he starts to move and his leg goes out of the matte painting frame oh, that is surrounding <laughs> them on the lawn. <laughs> I wish I had t- noticed that. that was, that's good. Yeah, I, I did notice a little little bit of glitchy on the, the the zooming in with the transporter effect. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't what you'd expect from today. I mean, today they can make it so it looks oh, like yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's still again for you know nineteen eighty nine. This was it was I mean, good, incredible. Yeah, this was incredible. I, I did like um, Riker stepping into the snare. That was awesome. It's yeah. hanging upside down <laughs> as he greets them. Uh, yes, I'm from the Enterprise. <laughs> um, yeah, that could they, they could have done that on lower decks. Yes, that actually yep. would be a good lower decks one. Uh, so I have a note like w- at this point, I'm like, why was this couple spared? And it's it's Kevin himself who brings up the potential claim that they betrayed the others to have their own lives spared. He brings that up. Like, I mm-hmm. bet you think we we betrayed the others in order to 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 you know, to the enemy in order to spare our lives. Uh, yeah. So we may as well talk about this. Kevin is really, really, really bad at deception. Yes. So he wants to be left alone to grieve the loss of his wife and live out this fantasy with the recreation of her. And so just right and left, he's making bad decisions toward Mm -hmm. achieving that goal. The way to do I mean, and frankly, Picard is also doing stupid stuff to unravel this mystery. I I I could have if it, it Dowds apparently are not very smart. <laughs> <Right>. yeah, <laughs> especially for creatures. I mean, you'd think he's a creature of deception that survives for thousands of years by taking on other identities and he's never been caught. This guy should be a born liar manipulator and he's terrible at it. Yeah. Given his fantastic abilities, what he should have done when they said you're on this devastated world and they could come back and kill you is oh why don't we go with you we'll go to another planet and you can drop us off and either i and my fantasy wife can live there or if i really want some alone time i can zap us back to this planet or some other planet and y'all would Mm -hmm. never suspect instead he he i mean who knows how many times that's actually happened to them there could be droughts in every seat, dowds in every season. Right. Yeah. But this one is asleep at the switch. And so he gives us the common writing trope right out the gate of defensive husband versus welcoming wife. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he's like super defensive, but Rishon is much more open minded and welcoming. And it's like, okay, how many times have I seen that? And then. We get in all instead of just going with them and then doing whatever he wants later, 
he attacks Troy telepathically in this blunt way that's going to get their attention. Yeah. He has this magical five times the mass of the Enterprise Husnock ship that he materializes and brings in and then attacks them with attacks the Enterprise with tiny pinprick pulses that don't do any damage. Right. He has them chase this ship out of the solar system to the point that even Picard says, I get the distinct impression we're being toyed with, causing Picard to to not participate in the game anymore and come back and tell them we're going to stay in orbit forever, which is totally unbelievable. Mm-hmm. There's no way this is... A, it, it, okay, let's suppose it was the real USS Enterprise as a naval ship here on Earth, and I'm marooned on an island that's in under threat, and I'm I'm not leaving the island. Mm-hmm. There's no way they're going to have the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier circle the island I'm on forever until I die. That is right. completely unreasonable, even in the 24th right. century culture. Ships like that are too valuable to to assign them such trivial duties. So that's completely unbelievable. And yet, Kevin apparently thinks it's a good idea, after Picard delivers the ultimatum, to immediately have the Husnock ship come back and destroy the house from orbit, and then instantly, (laughs) easily be destroyed by the Enterprise by a single photon torpedo when it had absorbed mm-hmm. multiple torpedoes and phaser blasts before. And this is his idea of deceiving the Enterprise? Really? You expect him to believe this? And he, he then <laughs> says in the reveal, I tried to fool the Husnock when they were here. And it's like, dude, you're just not good at this. <laughs> no wonder yeah. fooling the Husnock didn't work and only made them angrier. Look at what you've just done to the Enterprise. Right. Yeah, I mean, if he wanted, he's apparently powerful enough. Why didn't he just like instead of this little patch of land, make the whole planet look like it's a, a verdant uh, Eden? And then the Enterprise would go, "Well, that's weird." And then, or make a whole bunch of fake colonists for the Enterprise to say, "Well, I guess that that was just a a, a false alarm. I guess we can leave now." Or you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it was. It, that wasn't. That was not the believable part. <laughs> <laughs> so. I I do like though having a because once they catch him out and mm-hmm. and confront him with what he's been doing he 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 apologizes and is genuinely sorry for what he did to Troy and he takes the earworm out of her head and he explains that he explains everything that happened and I like having a super powerful being for once that is capable of making mistakes and then regretting and learning from them in a humble mm-hmm. manner. Yeah. You know, even if Q will occasionally admit he made a mistake, he's not humble about it, ex- with very few exceptions. This guy is, he's really chastened. He really regrets what he's done. You know, the, the, it's the ending. It's that part of, the, of this episode that redeems mm-hmm. it for me. Up to that point, it was mm-hmm. kind of, a little by the numbers, like you said, there's that trope of the welcoming wife and the uh, and the curmudgeonly husband, and you know we just want to be left alone, um, and that whole thing. But it's that that last bit where you know Kevin reveals he didn't just like take on the, somebody else's identity. He he really was Kevin Uxbridge. He lived as a human on Earth for over fifty years. He really did meet right. the real Rashawn and fall in love and go move to this colony. So it, it is interesting. 
to to see those elements and then his his grief his his uh even though he's a pacifist he you know he in fact says at one point i wouldn't even kill to defend rashan like he says mm-hmm. which is what he did you know he or didn't do i like also the fact that he's recreated rashan in such detail that she backtalks him yes you know she has a even though she doesn't have a mind of her own she has a mind of her own and mm-hmm. she um she will disagree with him and there you know even though they clearly love each other there's she will she will work to like soften things that he's been doing yeah. and she'll disagree with him in front of the visitors and stuff like that and uh it's like oh no kevin we're not going to do that here let's do this instead and i i like the fact that she comes across as a real person she's not just a plastic woman here mm. yeah we should mention that Rashawn is played by the actress Anne Haney who we've recently seen in the DS9 episode Dax she was the Bajoran judge in that one and I liked her in this I liked her even more in that she was yeah she was a kick-butt judge yes yeah, it, it, it's funny though that both uh both actors and also uh John Anderson played Kevin he's, he's one of those actors that you've seen everywhere yeah I mean he's especially in the 50s and 60s a lot of TV back then but they're playing characters that are much older than they are, because both of them were in their 60s, early 60s when they did this role. And yeah. they were playing characters who were in their 80s. Right. The- so. Also, John Anderson had lost his real world wife who had died mm-hmm. just a year before this episode. And he almost turned down the role for that reason. And I can understand that if I was an actor sure. and they'd offered me a role like this the year after Renee died. Wow, that would have yeah. brought up some intense emotions because I was still in the in in the acute phase of the grieving process. And watching it as a widower, it it you know made me think. Well, if I had his powers, what would I do? You know, mm-hmm. I what I might do is recreate a version of Renee. Not to have a an extensive fantasy life with like this, because that would be mm-hmm. creepy to me. Um, but just as a memory aid mm-hmm. of to help me remember and keep vivid the exact inflection of her voice and her mannerisms and things like that. Because that's because those really do fade over time. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you can do to capture those little details and keep them vivid in your memory forever the brain just doesn't work that way i wish i had extensive videotape of Mm. renee but i don't she died before i mean we were poor we didn't have a video camera Mm -hmm. and so i i have pictures of her but i don't have sound recordings and i don't have motion capture of her mannerisms and stuff and so if i had kevin's abilities i might in the immediate wake of her death, use that as a way of having a memory aid to better remember her by. Sure. But I wouldn't live with it and live mm-hmm. out this fantasy because that's just creepy. Yeah. I have to say the, uh, the actor's grief probably added to the effectiveness of, of the, the performance. Absolutely. Yeah, because Absolutely. Uh, that was effective. Yeah. Um, so two, two things I want to point out that I kind of found a little weird. The whole Troy thing was weird. It was, why doesn't she tell anyone about her pain? Why is she hiding it? Why does she refuse to go to sickbay? It's just, it's very mm-hmm. odd the way she, mm-hmm. she deals with all of this. 
So I thought that was weird. The other weird thing was Picard not revealing even to his staff what yeah. when he realizes what's really going on. Also, yeah. I have in my notes Picard's solution when he reali- he realizes way early that only Kevin survived the attack. Mm-hmm. And he's deduced mm-hmm. that Rashawn is not real. And he has no evidence for that. So I have in my notes, Picard's solution is underdetermined by the facts. And right. he is being reckless. And he is frankly undertaking, he's putting the ship at extreme risk on a hunch. Because if mm-hmm. he's wrong, and he admits he may not be right about his assumption. Well, guess what, dude? If you're not, you could get everybody dead. Yeah. Because that ship is way more powerful than you are. That's been established. And if you're right that Kevin is the sole survivor and is responsible for everything, including the super powerful ship that is much more powerful than you are, then you should not be taking these cavalier risks with the life of your crew. This is severe captaincy malpractice. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And of course, this goes back to we've talked before about bad writing where important aspects are not said just to amp up the drama you know Picard right. so a lot of the drama on the ship could have been solved by Picard saying I've got some real concerns about what's going on down there that Kevin is the only one who actually survived all this and you know but that was never said and so I'm doing yeah. all this to try to draw him out but of course they don't say that you know Troy could have said you know I've, right for, when they're seeing that briefing there's something that's really concerning me here it's causing me physical pain or it's psychological pain or however you want to put it and it, it could have changed how they handled all that yeah uh but it, but drama. Yeah, i gotta ramp up the drama somehow and <laughs> apparently the writing a better drama story isn't part of it yeah so a couple of little small criticisms before i say some nice things because i really do like this episode i mm-hmm. i enjoy it i think it's a okay. good episode especially for the period a couple of things that detract from it one of them is whenever the husnox ship shows up we see the exact same footage of it coming into <laughs> orbit. And it's like three times in the yeah. same in the same episode within minutes of each other. Guys, film it from a different angle, okay? Mm. Right. It's 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 really obvious that it's just the same footage uh redressed with a force field in one case. Also, and this is a much more minor point, and I'm just nitpicking here, but um when Initially, after Riker and the gang have beamed down, before Picard is beamed down, and they've said, you know, aren't you coming with us? And Kevin and Rashawn say, no, we're not. Riker gives them his military-grade classified communications device off of his chest and says, well, we'll be in the system for a few days, so call us if you change your mind. It's like, (laughs) dude, you just gave her your military-grade Starfleet classified phone. Yeah, <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't give my phone to anybody like yep. that, and it is not a military-grade classified one. It's just got my stuff on it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't want yeah. everyone having my contact list, and, and, I, and I, I, I don't want to have to set up a new phone, <laughs> yeah, although right. that's probably easy in the 24th century. You just walk up and say, replicator, make me a new phone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and then apparently the ship to shore Wi-Fi wasn't working uh, because data had to download all the data on the uh, yeah. on the the, the, the couple colonists. Yeah. Well, on the colonists. Oh, as right. Whole, but it, it but it, it, of course, that shows the time 
time frame from when this was written, the idea that you could actually have a, a full time connection between the ship and Data's brain. Yeah. Where he could just grab whatever he needs from the Enterprise computer at a second's notice. You know, they that was completely foreign idea to them. Also, they the way Data says it, he says, I memorized the yeah. the colony manifest on the way here. And that's supposed to be impressive because it's got like they've established there were 11,000 people in this colony. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But today that's like nothing. Data wouldn't say but, I memorized it. That implies yeah. he like went through it page by page or screen by screen. Today he would just say I downloaded the spreadsheet. Exactly. Right. Right. Whole right. database downloaded. SQL'd. Uh, Father Corey, uh, any last thoughts? Um, I got a. I got a kick out of Worf. Worf had yes, a couple of good one-liners in this. That's that's what. Sir, may I? Oh, no. Well, I was going to say that's of the good things I was about to mention. Worf has the best lines. Yes. Oh yeah. When they show up on the planet, he detects with his tricorder that Kevin's gun before Kevin even gets there that it's a non-functional phaser, and Kevin bluffs them with it, and later. Worf says it was an it was an act of unmitigated gall to try to bluff us with a non-operational phaser. And Kevin says, didn't yeah. fool you, huh? And Worf says, I admire gall, which <laughs> yeah. is the most memorable line of the episode. Also, later, when he and Picard come back, yes, they've served they've Rashawn has served them tea. And there's this moment of silence and Worf fills it by saying. Good tea, nice house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, I, I actually, it was better because Rashawn says, well, what do you think, Mr. Worf? Yeah. And he kind of goes, good tea, and then looks around, nice house. And it's just, <laughs> that was it. Worf had some of the best one-liners in this. You yes. know, and a lot of good humor kind of in the middle, middle of you know, a fairly serious story. So I think that was kind of a, a good way to do it. Right. And then, you know, they ha then you have the ship that shows up, and the first time it hits it with 40 megawatts of power. That's not anything for power even today you can you know yeah businesses buy external generators for you know backup generators that produce more than 40 megawatts of power right but then of course the next time the ship shows up it's like ten thousand times more at 400 gigawatts of power that's a little bit more serious power although i would be shocked in the 24th century if 400 gigawatts of power would be enough to you know drain the shields more than say a little bit instead of completely knock them out and damage the ship and all kinds of yeah. systems go down and, and, and it'll send you back in time, like 300 something times. So yeah, exactly. 1.21 <laughs> 1. 1. 1. gigawatts will do that. <laughs> well, gigawatts are bigger than gigawatts. So <laughs> it's a problem with, with scientific units in sci-fi. It's like yeah. in doctor yeah. who in the third doctor's time, they go to a nuclear power plant and it's like, this this power plant is manufacturing a million electron volts. Do you know how small that is? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. They need so. they they it's better when they make up numbers, when they make up scientific units that have no real world meaning except in the case of Kelly cams, which is a Klingon unit of measure of distance that just sounds stupid. <laughs> which kind of basically happens to be like a kilometer it's or a something kilometer. Yeah. Knows. Right. <laughs> Jimmy, any, well, that's all I got. Any notes, Jimmy? Well, to end on a positive note, so I wanted to go back to uh, the music box that we mentioned, because it's got these, it's like a little glass dome on a base, and then under the glass dome, there's a man in a, like a, a tuxedo and a woman in a, in a dinner dress, an evening dress, and they're in, uh, they're in a, a waltz position, 
Mm-hmm. And then it plays a waltz tune and the couple in the under the glass dances around. And Data is fascinated by the music box when he first mm-hmm. encounters it. And there's some symbolism happening there because Data is a mechanical man and the f- couple in the music box is a mechanical or mechanical people. And so there's an interesting, it's like a little miniature of what Data is in a sense. Hmm. And then later, uh, we, later in the episode after Picard has beamed up, before he comes back the second time, we see Kevin and Rashawn, they're playing the music box, and the two of them are in the same position and are dancing around their house. And it's a very nice scene, and it hints at the fact that Rashawn is not real, just like right. the woman in the music box is not real. And so we have some interesting subtext with the music box and its symbolism, both reflecting the situation with Data and reflecting the situation with Kevin and Rashawn. So I like that. I guess a couple final notes. One is I just want to note in general how quickly these things were made back in the day in 1989. The final draft mm-hmm. script for this episode was from the end of July 1989. Is The premiere air date was October 9th. And I don't think right. they actually started filming till September <laughs> on this. I mean, it is pretty remarkable. Like, like a, the turnaround compared to today where you have, they film like a whole season, a year and a half before they, you know, the new season Picard right. probably filmed a year and a half before it releases and that sort of stuff. It's a, it's amazing well, how quickly they put things together back then. Well, and, and like this, this I heard recently a couple of weeks ago that uh, they've filmed the, the regeneration sequence for Doctor Who. That episode's not supposed to come out until like next summer, right? Or this summer, as a uh, as this episode releases. But yeah, coming, yeah, yeah. But yeah, exactly. This coming summer, right? Yeah, it's 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 amazing the, how they were able to do this. The other thing I wanted to mention was Picard's final line, his his captain's log, which was kind of interesting. He 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 says, "We leave behind a being of extraordinary power and conscience." I'm not certain if he should be praised or condemned. Only that he should be left alone. And I'm not sure why. What praise should there be for this being who? Killed fifty billion Husnak. I'm not sure what he was getting he, at there. He he does have so number one he he clearly loved his wife, mm-hmm. and number two he even though he he violated his principles, he had strong principles. Uh, if he had not been a pacifist, things would have not have gotten to the uh, point that they did mm-hmm. that caused him to snap. He could have dealt with the situation in a much lower level. And actually, that's a reason for criticizing him. But at least he he had the moral fiber to stick with his principles, despite the fact that his being a pacifist, you know, is a luxury item that not everybody can afford. Right. Right. Interesting. Oh, I get that. I get that. All right. I think that should do it for us. Uh, We would first like to take a moment to thank our patrons and make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including. Leland M., Ferdinand V., Jim K., James C., and Dustin R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And, of course, we'd like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of The Next Generation story, The Survivors? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our facebook page at facebook.com slash starquest media 
or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the DS9 episode, The Hippocratic Oath. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Don. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and I admire Gaul. <laughs> and once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest, and remember, good tea, nice house. What is that in Klingon, though? <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming We've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.